Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. No, 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 no. Conversations about collaboration, episode 80. Dr. Vanessa Patrick joins me today. We talk about her new book, The Power of Saying No, the new science of how to say no that puts you in charge of your life. Let's get it on. Vanessa, where does this pod find you? I'm in Houston, Texas. Great. Well, let's jump right into it. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much. And I, th I think it's very timely. I'm endlessly fascinated with employee empowerment. And you, in the middle of the book, talk a little bit about a man by the name of David Graeber, an anthropologist. And he writes about bullshit jobs that, if eliminated, would make no discernible difference in the world. In fact, as you write, it might actually make the world a better place. Um, I don't want to slam my previous employers, but I can certainly recall during my career certain times in which I said, really? I got, I got to do this. Um, talk a little bit about so, some of the bullshit jobs and how it can be difficult for people, depending on where they are in their career, to say no, because now that I'm not a spring chicken, um, you know, I am much more likely to, quite frankly, stand up for myself and say, well, I really don't think I should be doing that. But during my early years, it would never occur to me, oh, this is what your boss wants and you do it. Right. That's a really good point, because there are some jobs that are actually part of what constitutes training for an individual. And it might consider you might consider them to be bullshit, but they are very, very much part of you know what you become. They they kind of are the uh, training wheels that get you further. So if you think about, I mean, my own experience, you know, as a as a doctoral student, you're very poorly paid. There's a lot of work. You have to do a ton of grading in order to earn the stipend that you get. But all of that is all. Uh, work that you do in order to gain the experience you need to become a full-fledged professor at some point. So there, there are some jobs, especially in the beginning of your career, that you, you got to do to kind of get experience. But as you move on, I think you get a, a scope of work that is constitutes your job, and you have a better sense of what you're skilled at. And as knowledge workers, I do think that we do have some leeway in deciding how we spend our time at the in the workplace. So if you find yourself, for instance, spending a lot of time doing stuff that is not a core aspect of your job, it's time perhaps to push back. Research also talks about the fact that we might, in organizations, be asked to do in a voluntary work or what the researchers call non-promotable tasks. So non-promotable tasks are the tasks that you're asked to do that have nothing to do with your advancement in your career, nothing to do with the core job. They might include things like organizing a retirement party or an office picnic, picking up coffee or bagels for a meeting, uh, cleaning out the break room refrigerator. Now, these tasks do have to be done, but if you find yourself in a position where you're constantly doing them and no one is taking turns doing them, it, it is probably time to think about pushing back. So I was thinking about that in the book, and then a couple of days ago on LinkedIn, I saw a study 
I don't know if you saw this one about how loyal employees don't necessarily get rewarded for their loyalty, whether you saw this one. No, I don't think so. Okay. It was just interesting to me. And they, I guess, found a way to quantify things and they're, you're a proper academic. I just pretended to be one for a few years. Um, yeah, basically the, basically the point of the article or the study was that, you know, that it's asymmetrical. So employees, when they looked at it, were willing to step up to the plate and in your language, not say no, or to say yes, but often they weren't promotable tasks and it made me exactly. think. Um, so I, it just made me wonder if, if things really are asymmetrical and whether this post pandemic world of employee empowerment actually is resetting things to a more normal level rather than just we're the managers, we can tell you to do whatever you like. If you don't like it, you can leave versus now you really have to listen to employees, whether that's with mental health, working from home or mm -hmm. employee resource groups, the things that we've seen in the last three years. Absolutely, absolutely. And so uh, so the research on non-promotable tasks actually shows that there's also an asymmetry by gender. So women, for example, are more likely to be asked to do non-promotable tasks and also more likely to say yes to those tasks. So you can see in terms of promotions, if you, if you think about you know, the slower trajectory of women to the top, it might be attributable in part to the fact that you know, they're filling up their plates with non-promotable tasks and being the good citizens, the good organizational citizens, but that really does not pay off for themselves in the long run. That's an interesting point. So if you see someone, to use your example, cleaning the break room or making copies, um, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, does that force you to view that person in a different way? Oh, that person's not executive material. You know, maybe if they did it 30 years ago when they worked their way up. But mm. I kind of wonder about that. If you are doing those low value work, uh, tasks, in fact, um, a friend of mine is a college professor, school doesn't really matter here, but um, when she was getting her doctorate in a meeting, mostly with men, they thought nothing of asking her, you can take notes here. Yeah. And I just, I find that in, quite frankly, incredibly sexist. Yeah. So I think, I think that that, that still occurs in some organizations. I mean, there's enough research out there that talks about the fact that, you know, women, there's a, there's a certain, um, there's definitely a certain image associated with women doing certain types of tasks and then being mentally categorized as good for those tasks, but not good for, say, leadership positions. I want to ship, shift gears and I'm going to edit that one. I want to shift <laughs> gears and talk about salt and lasagna. Um, you've got a model in the book, and, and I agree with your assessment that not all asks are created equal. Um, can you briefly describe the model of, and you break it down by two different dimensions, cost to you and benefit to others? Uh, so we'll start with pass the salt. What, what do you mean by that in the context of your model? So the model is a way by which you can decide or discern what to say yes to and what to say no to. So it's really about deciphering the ask and immediately kind of getting a sense of, okay, this is something I need to say yes to and this is what I need to say no to. So the, uh, the, the model is divided into cost to you and benefit to others. And that can be on a high or low and benefit to others can be high or low. So 
A pass the salt request is a request that comes your way that is high on benefit to others and low on benefit on cost to you. So if it's something that's easy for you to do and benefits someone greatly, by all means, do it. Now, as a professor, I come across those kind of asks a lot. Uh, a, a recommendation that I write for a, for a person to get into law school, for example, may take me 15, 20 minutes to write, but it kind of might make the difference in that person's career. And so it's a huge, uh, it's a huge benefit to the person who, for whom I'm writing the letter. And so those to me are past the salt ass. You, the benefit to the other person outweighs the cost to me. Now we have to caution ourselves. We keep piling up our days with all these past the salt asks. They can really, really add up. Right. Uh, so you'll, you'll so, never eat at the table if you're constantly passing salt. To passing it. salt, precisely, right. precisely. And then you asked about the lasagna, bake your favorite lasagna asks. And these are, you know, these careless asks where someone asks you for something huge that was going to be a huge drain of time, like baking a lasagna for a potluck. Uh, and yeah, maybe you make a great lasagna, but uh, is it worth it? Could you not just buy a party tray from the local store and go to the potluck? So if it's something that's a huge ask of you, but it's going to be a drop in the ocean in terms of the contribution it makes, then maybe scale back a little bit, push back against that ask. Because in many ways, the, those are careless asks. They are not respectful of your time and the commitment you have to make to, in order to put that together. Well, this leads me to some of your discussion in the book about self-awareness and the different dimensions of it. And I thought that was really interesting because I think over the last five to 10 years, I've been thinking more and more about self-awareness or, or lack thereof. And mm -hmm. I do feel like most of the people in my life possess a decent degree of it, but I can remember in previous jobs, not having the most of it, quite frankly. And then more recently, a couple of colleagues that just had very little of it. So talk a little bit about this internal sense of self-awareness versus um, for lack of a better term, an external sense of how yes. others see us. Because I think that directly impacts, you know, if you're saying pass the salt, well, if you're not self-aware, you go, how dare you, right? When it really just right, takes right. eight seconds. Right. So so, so self-awareness is about two, has two key dimensions, internal self-awareness and external self-awareness. Internal self-awareness is your knowledge about yourself, your knowledge about your preferences, your beliefs, your attitudes, what you care about, your strengths, understanding you. External self-awareness is understanding how others see you understanding how you operate in the world and what the the impression that you cause. So I teach a class on personal branding. And this is very much about, you know, communicating the value that you bring to the table and knowing what others think about the value that you bring, right? And so those are the two key dimensions of, of, of self-awareness that I talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like we're getting better at, self-awareness or are we so self-involved because we're staring at our phones all day that we think the world revolves around us and is social media and technology really exacerbating the problem or do you feel like that's just a young thing and as you get older you know I mean you see people having meltdowns on social media and you go really you know it's you know it's someone burnt your sandwich or something let's not have a hissy fit 
so i do think that you know there are obviously always going to be varying degrees of of self awareness i do think uh, and i think the research bears it out that as you age you become more self aware you just have more life experiences and more opportunities to reflect and and perhaps gain more self awareness but you can also possibly meet people who are extremely self aware when they are younger uh, and and I I do think that as parents we have a wonderful opportunity to introduce the notions of self awareness into our children uh, and and kind of have conversations that build that self awareness. Hmm. Um, I have a contact lens issue. Can you hold on for one second? I'll edit. Absolutely. This. I'll be right back. Sorry. Sure. Sorry about that. Been known to happen. I'll um I'll edit it out. It'll it'll look clear. I'm not great at audio editing, but um okay. Ready to go back? Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, one of the things that made me laugh reading the book, Vanessa, was the, the trap of the mickle. Say more. <laughs> the many mickles make a muckle trap, uh, and I think it goes back to the the uh, pass the salt acts. Now, if you land up taking a, a ton of small things, which just add up, and your entire day can be spent doing these very, very fragmented tasks, and you do feel busy, but it's not a good busy. It's a busy that is not productive because all you've done is just answer a whole bunch of emails, write a whole bunch of recommendation letters, do a little a whole but a bunch of little things that just add up and can drain you. And so, uh, while I'm I'm all for past the salt. I also uh, talk uh, about the need to monitor how much of that you are doing. So I understand the focus on what you do during the day. We all want our work to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, but talk to me a little bit about when you do it. Um, I know that in some companies, unfortunately, there's this expectation that you're always on. I find it astonishing when I talk to people from other countries. We'll almost apologize as Americans 
uh, I'm going on vacation and I won't be checking something, right? Whereas in Europe or Canada, it's, you know, I'm on vacation. Why would I check? Um, is it just me or is it not just what you do, but when you do it and, and being unable to enter flow state? So even if you are going to set aside an hour for writing student recommendation level letters, if during that hour you get interrupted 15 times with emails or people tapping you on the shoulder, it makes it worse. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's research about it. And I think my favorite book on the topic is Deep Work by Cal Newport, where he's talk, he talks a great deal about the value of having concentrated time. And this very much links to uh, the con a concept that I talk about in the book, which is on personal policies. Now, personal policies are simple rules that we set up for ourselves that are based on our values, our priorities, our beliefs, and our preferences. So if we decide that we are going to take a certain amount of time to write, say, recommendation letters, we have to carve that out on our calendar and switch everything off and get those tasks done. So personal policies are the rules that we set up for ourselves. They are the rules that help guide us and navigate us through those days so that we end up living truer to ourselves. Now, personal policies can take two main forms. They can take the form of self-talk in which you coach yourself into you know, using self-discipline to follow the personal policy that you've set up for yourself, or they can take the form of announcements by which you share those personal policies with others. So in my research, I've talked to many people who are leaders, and have used the concept of personal policies. So let's say you're a senior bank manager and you have to get a really good sense of the financial status of the bank on a daily basis. There's a, there's a bank manager I spoke to who essentially carves out her time between eight and nine every morning. First thing, she gets a good grip of where they, where they stand financially, the transactions, everything she needs to know. And of course, this is a personal policy that she's set for herself. So she, it's in her calendar as something that she has to do. So it's self-talk in some sense. But also, everybody in the organization knows that she is busy between 8 and 9 in the morning. And so they will not interrupt. And that's the same thing with, with um, you know, going on vacation or not taking work calls between fam at family time in the evening. So if you set up a personal policy, see which says between six and eight in the evening, I don't take work calls because this is family time. You could set that policy up and you have to not take work calls. You have to be true to that yourself for sure. But you also, once you announce it to others, people respect those boundaries or those policies. That is fascinating to me because I realized back in 2014 that I got a lot of email and it started to annoy me. But then I realized that I wasn't using any kind of personal policy. So I invented, for lack of a better term, a three email rule after three, we talk. And it definitely rubs some people the wrong way and I will make exceptions to it. But I've really stuck to that for the most part for the last seven or eight years. And people know, oh yeah, you're the guy who doesn't do email. Okay, fine. Here's my Calendly link and I'll schedule time with you because it is just easier sometime to do that. But um, so the, is the personal policy a type of boundary or do you consider them different things? So I actually consider personal policies and boundaries quite different. Okay. Boundaries, as I see it, are 
the barriers that you have to put up to prevent others from coming in. So they are like the barbed wire hmm. right, that you would put up. I see personal policies as these pretty red velvet ropes, you know, the stanchions that you see in various uh, music venues. And oh, is that what those creators. are called? I always wondered what those were called, stanchions. stanchions. I learned something today. Wow, okay. <laughs> I did not know that. I see them as stanchions because what they do is that they shape the path you want to go on, hmm. but you set them up yourself. You are the one setting those red velvet ropes up. They are not response to uh, a bound. They are not a boundary in the sense that so you're setting them up to keep someone else out. Instead, you are setting them up to shape your own preferences, to shape the path that you want to take. So, what happens when, let's just say, you and I are colleagues at a university, and I've got my stanchions, and you've got yours. And for me, it's, I, I don't do email back and forth. I only mm -hmm. use Slack. And you go, yeah, I don't do Slack. I just use email. Yeah. Who and wins? So we'd have to come, yeah, I suppose you... we'd have to have some sort of compromise, right? So I'm very fond of talking about this in terms of difficult conversations. You always have to abstract above. So I, I was coached by someone who taught me, whenever you face this sort of conflict, you have to find a higher order construct that we both care about. So let's say we both care about students. So then we create a pool of shared meaning, which is how do we best benefit our students? It's not about Slack or email. It's about figuring out how do we, let's say that this whole conversation is about student success, right? So then it's not about whether we talk about Slack and email, it's about students. So we will find a way to talk if we both care enough about the topic at hand. Hmm. And so, and so, you know, in navigating uh, any difficult conversation in academia or elsewhere, you know, you do have to find that kind of pool of shared meaning to have a conversation with the other person. I think it's particularly challenging. About three weeks ago, I did a keynote in, or as of this recording anyway, um, in DC for the Professional Conference Management Association, probably messing up the acronym. And they specifically wanted me to talk about collaboration because in planning a mm -hmm. conference, you're dealing with all these different entities. You've got the venue and the speaker and the speakers bureau and the techies and the sponsors and the list went on. There were something like 15 different groups. And of course they all, I shouldn't say they all, but many of them use different tools mm -hmm. to help us figure out how to do this because it's difficult to stick the landing. Things always fall between the cracks. And even if we do manage to pull it off, people are getting back to your earlier point. They're fried. So, I mean, any tips for the listeners on how to manage that when you're dealing with multiple parties and you may not necessarily have direct authority over one of them? That's, a, you know, that's not exactly my area of expertise, the conflict aspect. Hmm. Uh, you know, I could think about uh, ways to find ways to collaborate and if someone has to compromise and if it's not something that you really feel strongly about maybe you can adapt and change for a little bit just to make the con just to be more cooperative with the rest of the group um you know my my work on empowered refusal really says that it's about how strongly you hold the belief that or oh, an unwilling to compromise because it does not stem from uh, a, a value system so if if it's something that you hold very strongly like i will not use social media 
for whatever reason, you're, you're just fundamentally opposed to it, then it's probably best that you're not part of this conference organizing if that's the forum by which all of the meetings are being discussed. But for the most part, I think we do have to adjust our preferences and adapt to other people's preferences in the workplace. Yeah, easier said than done, but I like What your- did you say? Uh, I'm sorry. I just saw curious. What was your solution? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'll give you the short answer. Um, I do think that it helps when you're selecting partners and vendors to ask them from the beginning Yes. What tools do you use? And to it, so we put into contractual terms, we need to be paid within 30 days of the invoice, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'd like to see just as it's not going to solve all the problems, but I'd like to see contract language around for the duration of this project, we're going to communicate in Microsoft Teams. And if you don't like it, then we're not going to work together rather than you're two weeks into the project and you're already butting heads with each other because you're... And you do have people who are willing to say no. And in some cases, they may want to use a new tool, but say the IT department blacklists it or they don't have a license for it or they haven't been trained on it. So I, it's it wasn't a short talk. <laughs> no, I, think it's a, I think that's a really wise solution. I mean, it reminds me of this list I once read about the discussion questions you should have before you decide to get married. You know, it's like the same thing. I mean, you're getting into a long-term relationship. You need to be on the same page with regard to the absolute must-haves because it's not after you get into it that you discuss, oh, yeah, you did want kids. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, the last thing I'll ever do on this podcast or in general is give relationship advice, but um, with props to um, the talk show host, Colin Coward, he's got a great relationship hack. So if it's getting serious, go on a trip because <laughs> dealing with, delays or cancellations or you know changes in plans will bring out your true colors not unlike say alcohol right if mm-hmm. you happen to be a gregarious person and you have a few drinks you're probably more gregarious if you're a mean person and you have a few drinks you're probably even more mean um well um th- before we wrap up here i want to talk a little bit about the hero's journey that okay. struck me as really interesting um so you've got high cost and high benefit and yeah. I think about a lot about that if I'm writing a book that involves a tremendous amount of work um, mm-hmm. in and of itself and the opportunity cost, what you could what could you be doing with that time? Mm-hmm. But then, as you know, with, with your book here, you put it out there and you make these new connections and you reach people. There's this, I mean, there's so many benefits to doing it, but you don't know, just, you know, um, you didn't just use chat AI, write me or chat GPT, write me a book and boom, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so the hero's journey is the ask that you have to, that are important asks because they can potentially benefit a lot of people, but it comes at also a high cost to you. And so you need to really spend time investigating those asks, asking questions. And so I have a list of questions I talk about in the book. You know, Do I really want to do this? Do I have the resources in place, the time, the energy, the money to do this in the moment? How aligned is this to my values and my purpose? Is this a priority at this time? Is this a good thing for me to invest in at this time? And in many ways, am I saying yes because I'm too afraid to say no to this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think about that list of questions as ands, not ors, because you might want to do this, but you don't have the resources. Or yes. you may want to do this, but you don't see how it adds value to your life. And mm-hmm. how in the past... Um, 
maybe I didn't ask some of those questions and was just so excited to do something Mm -hmm. because I wanted to curry favor with my new employer or make a good impression with my boss. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I, I wonder if people think about things this systematically or if it's more of a gut feel because you don't propose this in the book, but it's not like there's this mass. I mean, I guess you could build a model for anything, right? If the answer is on a certain scale and this is number of points, then you do it. Otherwise you don't. But of course that's subjective. Um, Are these the types of things that people should be asking themselves before they take on the hero's journey, as opposed to the salt, you're not going to go through is, do I want to do this? Yes. Do I have the resource? You know, that's just silly, but for something more along the lines of the hero's journey, you know, does it make sense to really go through all these questions? And if one of them, if the answer to one of them is no, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it at least now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, talking about, uh, uh, talking about these asks, they very often you, you read about people who, you know, all, all you need is one no, if it's a big and important decision, but there's one solid no. So it's not just you add up, you look at the questions and if it's yes to everything, but no to one, that no might be the big no. And so take, thinking through the decisions, especially given the trade-offs. One of the things I say when it comes to saying no is that when you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. And so recognizing the trade-offs is so important. And if we keep saying yes to stuff that is not really up our alley, doesn't bring out the best in us, doesn't really make us feel empowered and happy and fulfilled, then we are cutting ourselves um, you know, a little bit short. You're giving, you're giving yourself the chance to really do the good work that you could potentially do. Um, yeah. So I'm very, very, very big on opportunity cost. So if you say, if you, an opportunity cost is essentially, you know, the cost of, uh, the, the price of not, uh, that the, the, the price of not, uh, the price of saying yes to things that you don't want to do, because then you are being, I wish I was saying this a little bit better. Uh, I'm not saying opportunity cost very well. Um, no, no, I'm with you. I mean, the way I understand <laughs> it, if you, as a speaker, let's just say I agree to a lesser paid gig and that's on the calendar. And yeah. on the same day, someone offers me a higher paid gig if I want to honor the contract and I do, you know, whatever the difference would be, that's basically my opportunity cost. Yes. But then you have to think about you know, locking in a certain amount of revenue and you know, life is messy. This is good as a framework. Mm-hmm. But yeah. you know, for things like, do I have the resource? I mean, if you want to buy a home and it costs $500,000 and you don't have 20% to put down, well, that becomes a lot easier uh, versus mm-hmm. if I want to do a book on this subject versus a book on that subject, and that could be a little bit fuzzier. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Good stuff, Vanessa. I'll get you out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? Um, I'm actually reading a novel because I'm I'm in the middle of uh, a hectic semester and I haven't had, I just love reading. So I'm currently reading um, The Marvelous Life of uh, Marjorie Post. I just started it. Uh, It's kind of historical fiction, uh, which I love. And it'll probably be a light and easy read, but I look forward to it. Thanks so much for being on the show, Vanessa. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, 
patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.